So um, tonight is going to be uh, a big departure from what we've been talking about um, during the classes, and we're going to take a look at something that I hope will shock you. Not shock you in a bad way, but shock you in a really happy way. Uh, and we're going to try to talk about what is going on now in our lives, in our body. So specifically, we're going to take a look at what's been happening in our community and what continues to happen. So the first thing I'd like to do is ask you to start off by just asking yourself what your concept of the truth is in the last days. Do you see it as something that we're holding on with the hope that we can uh, survive these last days here in North America in our ecclesias? Uh, or do you have a different vision than that? And to do that, um, I'm going to go to something that's called Malthus Grove, uh, Growth Curves that was actually put together, uh, I think, in the late 1800s by Thomas Malthus. And what he did is he said, look, there's a number of ways you can look at growth. One of them is the idea here that um, you would say incremental growth. Uh, that means that you, you have a family uh, that grows one, two, three people, and the next generation does the same. It's a small incremental kind of number. Uh, the other number that he talked about was arithmetic. And arithmetic means that it grows at a certain number at a regular uh, amount on a, on a fixed pace. So maybe it goes up 10% every 10 years. Arithmetic, so it's growing at a faster rate. And the last one is exponential. And an exponential rate means that based on the size of growth, the numbers look like a hockey stick. And what ends up happening is that you have growth that goes from one number to a much, much larger number in a, in a period of time. And then, the, actually, he didn't talk about, but there is negative growth curves also, where you actually will be able to see the growth be incremental, arithmetic, or exponential, but downward. So I'm just going to put this up here for a second to ask you to think in your head how you see your ecclesial situation and North America. I'm not going to ask you to answer that, but uh, do you see that as incremental growth, negative growth, arithmetic, or do you think it's exponential? And the reason I'm asking this is because we're going to all be challenged to think uh, perhaps a little bit differently about the truth in the last days. So the question is, how do you view the last days and the truth in North America? We're not going to talk about other, we are going to talk about other countries and other continents, but the question now is how do you see your ecclesia, North America, uh, in, the, uh, in the last days? Now, first of all, we have a lot of data that talks about what's going on. Um, this is in a Christadelphian hall, but you know, first of all, it's not just normal for Christadelphians to see declining attendance. What we see all over, particularly in places like Western Europe, are churches where they have brick and mortar, and they have beautiful churches, and they have nobody coming. And progressively, what they're doing is they're selling them, sometimes selling them to uh, Islamic groups. Other times, they're turning places that were churches 
into restaurants. Um, so the idea of declining membership is something that you see often. You might also say, in the last days, I think we're going to preach. I think we're going to preach and nobody's going to listen. Nobody wants to hear. Uh, and maybe the way you think about the, the groundwork, you know, the opportunity is something like this picture. We're on dry ground trying to take the word of God to a group of people who aren't really very interested and uh, perhaps see us as being a people who are uh, likened to what they think we used to think about Greek mythology, something that's in the past. Well, maybe that's the way you look at it, and maybe that's the way it's been in many of our communities. Let me add one more thing to that. When we look at those, many cases, those are signs that we hear about in the last days where there's a lack of urgency about responding to the gospel. And yet at the same time, we see so many signs which tell us that the alignment is there. The confederacies are aligned. Uh, there are so many things happened right that have already happened that you look at them now and you say, Christ can come at any moment. And the question is, why hasn't he? Why hasn't he? Why is it with all the things that are going, the alignments with, with Gog and Magog and, and all the other things that we can see in the world, why is it that Christ hasn't returned? And I've asked that question many, many times because I want him to return. But I'd like to suggest to you that a very good possibility for the reason is because God is still calling out a people for his name. There are still people today responding to the gospel. And that's what we'd like to take a look at here for a few minutes. So the first thing is God's clear plan in Scripture is that he intends to redeem the nations. This goes all the way back to the promise given to Abraham. Through thee and thy seed will all nations be blessed. That was the gospel preached to Abraham. And so uh, it's clear that God intends to do that. We read passages like Haggai where it talks about uh, for thus uh, saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations and the desire or the wealth of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. So this is the view of the redeeming of the nations. Or how about this one in Revelation 7 and 9 where we read, after this I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man can number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. So again, all nations, all kindreds, all people, all tongues. Now, I've only been around for almost 65 years. I can tell you 50 years ago this would not have been the case. It wouldn't have been the case, but I'd like to show you some information about how that's changing. And this final verse that we're going to look at here, which is out of Romans 11.25, and I only use the NIV for clarity. It says the same in the King James. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening, in part, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. 
God's intent is to be able to redeem the Gentiles and not just the Western nations, not just the English-speaking nations, but the full number of Gentiles. Jesus talked about that. He says, uh, for the Son of Man uh, is taking a far journey. Uh, he left his house and he gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house cometh. So what does it mean to watch? What does it mean in our ecclesias to be watching? Now, certainly you could say it's watching the signs of the times. Um, it's being able to see the developments that are going around the world. But I think it involves a lot more than that because it has to do with people who are given the charge of the house while the householder was away. What does watch mean to you and to your ecclesia? Well, some people see it like a bunker, that we need to bunker down to protect the truth. And you hear things like this, unfortunately, that we need to accept that people won't listen to our preaching. We've done preaching and people don't listen. Or they're listening, but we're not getting a lot out of a lot of return on investment for the money that we're spending. Or maybe you hear what sounds almost like a good idea, which is that we should put our focus on young people, but what happens is the saying is that we need to just focus internally on teaching our young people. And when we do that, we put our ecclesias out of balance. There are two reasons for ecclesias to exist. One is edification of our members, and two is outreach. And that's what Robert Roberts said in the Ecclesial Guide. And when we have a, a, a misbalance or an absence of one of those two, we do that at great risk. So when we think of that, we think of people who would say that they're viewing not incremental growth, but rather that we probably are in a negative direction with our growth. But you see, I, I don't think that's the way that we should be looking at the last days. That actually what we ought to be doing is looking for every opportunity for growth. And I hope to be able to deal with this during this time here this, this evening. Now, let's talk about Christadelphia for a little bit. I put this picture up. It's, uh, I don't know a single person here. Um, they are a group from the UK. And what's the first thing that you notice when you look at this group, besides the fact they're all well-dressed? I'm sorry? There are a few young people, but not that many. What else? They're all in white and black. Yeah, that was, that's a very good observation. <laughs> and it's a black and white picture, so it makes it even look worse. What's the ethnicity? They're all white. And so let me just talk a little bit about that. First of all, historically, as Christadelphians, we are first world developed countries, right? Just think about it. United States, Canada, England, Australia, New Zealand. I might have missed one, but, oh, excuse me. I'm sorry, James, South Africa. So, <laughs> but, that's right. But generally, that's, that is where we have been as a community historically, right? 
We are generally middle class, predominantly middle class. We are generally literate and educated. And we are in societies that are predominantly Christian and have embedded Christian values and ethics, even though we see that dramatically changing these days. And of course, the last one is the observation that generally, overall, that we tend to be a Caucasian community. That's us. That's who we've been. But I'd like to say, first of all, not only is this changing, it's already changed. It is already changed. And what I hope to share with you tonight, I hope you'll find to be interesting. So where is the Christadelphian body right now in 2019? And the first question I'm going to ask you is this. How many brothers and sisters, baptized brothers and sisters, do you believe we have in the United States and Canada? We're only talking about central ecclesias here. I don't have information on unamended or, or COGAF, but how many central brothers and sisters are there in the United States and Canada? How many, somebody want to take a guess? I'm sorry? 70,000? 70, well, I wish. 10,000. 6,000, very close. 2,500. The number actually is, believe it or not, somewhere very close to 6,500. It's a very good guess there, Jay. Um, about 6,500 brothers and sisters in our ecclesias. So that's what we have. And if I went back 20 years ago and I asked the same question, what do you think the number would have been? 6,500. On the kind of Malthus growth curves that we talked about, it's at best incremental and probably flat. So in North America, for Canada and the United States, the number of brothers and sisters, and that means we have deaths, we have people who leave the truth, we have people who come into the truth, um, that we have about 6,500. Okay, so I'm going to put some numbers up here for just a moment. The first number is 31 million. The second number is 13,000. And the third number is 9,400. I'm not going to ask you to guess this because you'll never guess it. This is the description of Mozambique. Mozambique has a total population of 31 million. They have double the number of brothers and sisters that we have in all of North America, 13,000. And they have nearly 10,000 that are in their Sunday schools. Does that shock you? Boy, it shocked me. Now, where is that little crazy uh, place, Mozambique? Well, it's on the southeastern coast of Africa, just above. Here's South Africa. Um, here we have uh, Zambia and Zimbabwe, um, Madagascar over here. This is Mozambique. And Mozambique has gone from virtually nothing to 13,000 brothers and sisters virtually in a period of just over 20 years. And I'll show you that in a moment. Now, how about Malawi? Malawi might have been the place that you would have thought was where the most Christadelphians were, because that's what I always heard for a long time. Malawi still has more Christadelphians in this 18.6 million uh, people than we have in all of the United States and Canada. So Canada, or excuse me, California, even though it does look like Canada, 
California has 40 million people. This is, more, this is less than half of the size of California. And they have 7,000 brothers and sisters, and they have 10,000, more than 10,000 Sunday school students. All right, so let's do a composite of these two. If you put them together, you have a population of, in Mozambique and Malawi of 50 million people. That's the combined combination uh, of population. They have 20,000 baptized members, which is three times the number of, of members that we have in North America, and they have 570 ecclesias, the average size being about 35. Those are staggering numbers. Now, I'm going to take it another step for you and, and see, first of all, that's exponential growth, by the way. That's the Malthus exponential growth curve. Um, if you were to go to Wikipedia in the United States and Canada, this to say the United States, and say, tell me about Christianity in the United States, and you were saying, where are the different, you know, how many people are, are Christians, and what are the, the, uh, the number of people or the, the major uh, religious sects that, are, that make up Christianity, you would see the typical ones up there. You would see uh, the Mormons, uh, you would see uh, Methodist Church, Baptist Church, and if you were to go down on the article, you'd see things like the Jehovah's Witnesses, certainly uh, uh, Catholics, etc. So you would see that, but you wouldn't ever see the Christadelphians, would you? We would be a, such a small fraction, we'd never show up. What happens when you do the same thing about religion, not just Christianity, in Mozambique? Where is it? Right there. Christadelphians. Listed along with the major Chris, Christian sects that are found in Mozambique. So this is really, really different. So said a different way, if the United States had the same ratio of baptized members to the population of Mozambique and Malawi, so if you take the percentage of Christadelphians in Malawi and in Mozambique, and you now take that and you apply that just to the United States, which is a population, I looked it up, it was about 340 million, something like that now. How many Christadelphians would we have in the United States? And you're not gonna believe the number, it's really the way it came out, it is, the math, it is mathematically correct, 144,000. How many Christadelphians did I say we have in North America, in Canada, United States? 6,500. If we had their experience, we would have 144,000. And beyond that, the average, with an average ecclesial size of 35 members, that would represent 4,114 separate ecclesias in the United States. And California alone, which has probably about maybe 15 ecclesias or so, I could be off on that, certainly less than 20, we would have approximately 16,000 members and 457 ecclesias. So I don't know about you, but I know for me that blows my mind. It absolutely changes the terms of reference. But there's other factors that go into this too, and that is that the ecclesias that we're used to are significantly different as we go around the world. Now, I show this picture for two reasons. 
One, sometimes we complain about the chairs. Sometimes we complain that, you know, the, the, the carpet's getting a little worn out. But this is a typical ecclesia in Mozambique. And there's another reason I want to show this to you. And this is the bottle of water right here, which is being used for the breaking of bread. They do not have wine. They can't find it. It's not available. And they couldn't afford it if it was available. And so they use water. That's an ecclesia in Mozambique. And the other thing that you see is children everywhere. The opportunity is huge. Now, one of the problems is in places like Mozambique, um, education, while it's available, is generally only, uh, well, let's put it this way. You'll see the numbers later on. It's not prevalent for women. So you have a number of sisters who would be Sunday school teachers, but they're illiterate, which is a pretty big problem. Um, lots of kids. This is another ecclesial uh, hall. Again, this one, I believe, is in Malawi. And here you have brothers and sisters who are reading in their own language Bibles. That's the big change, that the word has been made available in their local language. And not only are they reading their Bibles and they're doing the same Bible readings as us, they're reading and they're singing from Christadelphian hymn books. Um, a cappella, by the way, and doing quite well. Uh, so there's a fellowship that we have with people who are dramatically different in their backgrounds, in their experience. And they face a lot of issues. Insufficient financial resources to build permanent halls. You know, um, not only do they have the, the ravages of war in some of these countries, but they have terrible weather that comes in at times and will destroy these basically mud huts. And so what's having to be done is out of the UK, the Christadelphian Bible Mission is providing money for some masonry and also for tin to be able to put roofs together. So having a, a permanent hall for them. Uh, too few have their own Bible. In fact, can't imagine that they might actually have their own Bible. And as you can imagine, an insufficient number of hymn books. These are all things that need to be faced. And the other issues that they have is that they have very few capable brothers who have experience in a pastoral setting, who know what it's like to be an arranging brother and to take care of ecclesial matters. Uh, many of them are assigned to as many as seven or eight ecclesias to rotate around to these ecclesias to provide help and support to those ecclesias. The problem being, they're not home at their own ecclesia very often. That's, that's a bit of a problem. And as I said before, many sisters are not literate and unable to teach Sunday school. And what you have is overstretching of capable brethren and in many cases, uh, capable sisters uh, to teach very large classes. Well, there's also huge demographic gaps between our experience and an experience in a place like Mozambique. First of all, the average annual income is one quarter roughly one quarter of what ours is. One quarter, about $12,000 a year. The life expectancy, I mean, I would have been gone for five years by now. Um, this is, the average life expectancy is 60 years. And you compare that to the United States, 
again, this is for men. It's now 79.8. That's looking good. Uh, 79.8. Um, top causes of death in the United States, it's cancer, it's heart, heart disease, it's AIDS. 16.2% of all adults die of AIDS in Mozambique. And the second cause of death is tuberculosis. And the literacy rate, this is important in the ecclesias, is less than 60%. And as you can see, it's 71% for men and 43% for women. Uh, compare that to the United States where it's about 99%. Roughly, it's, it's full literacy. Now, why do you suppose girls would get less opportunity for education? It's because they're pulled in to a lot of the domestic chores that have to be done. Oftentimes, it's associated with getting water, uh, which oftentimes is a long distance away. So big, big differences. So then I decided, I thought, well, if it's Mozambique and Malawi, if that's the story, then we should talk about that. But maybe it's only Mozambique and it's only Malawi. So by help of the CBM, I was able to go through and look at the number of baptized believers in just Africa. We're just talking about Africa right now. And so you start looking through and you see, while you see Mozambique has 13,000 and there's 7,000 in a place like uh, Malawi, you can also see that places like Kenya have uh, 2,700. Um, I can't tell there what that one is. It's like Rwanda. Um, but you can see that there, there's a scattering across that. Now, if you were to add all that up, how many Christadelphians are, do we have? Now, we're talking about baptized Christadelphians. Do we have in Africa today? Just about 30,000. And do you know how many we had in the year 1996, which is just 23 years ago? 700. That's called exponential growth. That's a 4,058% increase in 23 years. Now, I'm sure there were people who thought 23 years ago that that wouldn't be possible in Africa, that they had lots of history which would tell them that uh, it was going to be difficult uh, for that kind of a thing to happen. But in fact, it has happened. And there's a big issue that we have as Christadelphians between Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere. Most of the growth in Christadelphia is in the Southern Hemisphere, and um, the Northern Hemisphere tends to be where you have the financial resources um, that would be able to make a lot of this work. Um, just looking across, I'm not gonna be able to spend time really as I should on Asia, but the Philippines, they have 600 brothers and sisters. They have 1,700 Sunday school students. And that was with the first baptism in just 1959. I wish I had the time to tell you the story about how the truth got started in the Philippines. It's fascinating. Um, here's a picture from, I believe, Sri Lanka. Um, here's another one. Uh, again, ecclesias with a lot of young people. Very encouraging as we look into these other places. Um, so, it's not just us. 
Christianity in general is growing dramatically in places like Africa. In 1900, there were about 10 million Christians that were in Africa. There now are 633 million, uh, or there will be by the year 2025. So huge numbers. And what this all means to us as we sit here in our comfortable place in North America is, in a word, the Christadelphian global body, it isn't what it was when your grandparents were born. It's not what it was when you were born or your parents. It is a completely different situation. <coughs> Today, more than half of all Christadelphians live on the continent of Africa. And that's where, between that and, and parts of Asia is where all the growth is. So the implications are that Western countries like ourselves, we're no longer the main show. I hate to use that phrase. It sounds like it's uh, some kind of Hollywood phrase. It's not intended to be that. But where the real story is right now is not in our Western countries. We're part of a much larger global fellowship. And progressively, that's the way we need to start thinking, that our fellowship is a global fellowship. And it will change our culture, and it's going to demand from us cultural sensitivity and a certain level of openness. But it's a, at the end of the day, it's a reminder to us that no matter how bad things may seem to be here in North America, God is working in the world right now to bring his truth to men and women. I want Jesus to be back right now. But I'm pretty thrilled about this, that there still are people who are getting the opportunity to learn the truth and to be excited about it and to raise their families as believers. So what's your perspective? Is it that your perspective is only people in developing or poor countries will have interest in the gospel these days? That might be one perspective. Another one might be that the window of opportunity for our society it's largely closed. We're more in a preservation mode. Or another one, which is, we, could we potentially be sitting right now poised for what might be the greatest opportunity in our community's history in North America? And I'd like to suggest that that's really possible. It may not appear that way right now. By all measures, it might not appear that way. But I think that there's a case for how this could change very rapidly. Remember, Africa grew 4,000% in a matter of 23 years. So let me take you back to a story in the Bible, and this is the story of Jonah, and it's the story of Nineveh roughly 2,900 years ago. Now you remember that Nineveh and the Assyrians were not friends to the Jews. They were a people who had been with great cruelty to the Jews. And when Jonah was told, go preach to them and tell them that they need to repent, his reaction wasn't, oh good, maybe we'll be able to have Assyrian brothers and sisters. He didn't want it. He wanted no part of it. And as you know, he went to escape. And there was nothing really about this society that they, you would look at that you would say, that looked like a really redeemable kind of place. Their religion was a mess. They were idol worshipers, worshiping the goddess Ishtar. They were cruel people. Now, this relief actually is a relief, a stone relief, and you probably wouldn't be able to understand what it is looking at. I wouldn't have, 
But what this was, was the practice of Assyria, where when they would capture people, they would actually skin them alive. And that's what's going on here. They're skinning them alive. That's the kind of cruelty that these people had. But the word comes to Jonah. He says, he's told, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And, of course, you know the rest of the story about how he flees, how he's swallowed by the fish, and eventually vomited out. He then goes, and what does he do? He preaches to the people. He tells them, he says, in 40 days, you've got 40 days, and if you don't repent, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And I'm pretty sure that when he went outside the city and he, and he sat there waiting for the 40 days, in his heart, he was hoping to see smoke come up at the end of 40 days. But what we see is even though this people were, they were as bad as you can imagine, as cruel, heartless, idol worshipers, what we see is they repent. They repent. Not only did the people repent, the king repented, and they say, uh, cry mightily unto God, yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way, from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works and that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he, had said, that he said he would do unto them, and he did it not. God wants to save people. And in this particular case, he gave the opportunity to the Assyrians. Okay, so you know the story. I'm going to have to kind of cut this short about Jonah. But he goes out of the city and he sits on, sits on the east side of the city and there made a booth and sat under the, under the shadow till he might see what would become. You remember the story includes the gourd that gave him shade that later perishes. And Jonah says, take my life. I'm, I'm, I'm just not good enough. And God says, should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons, 120,000, that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. And frankly, that phrase stuck with me. They can't discern between their right hand and their left hand. Now, it's not that they don't know which direction to turn, right or left. It's that they lack the basic fundamental knowledge of Scripture, knowledge of God's ways, to be able to make a discernment about what is right or wrong. They don't know anymore. Maybe they never knew. Well, interestingly, uh, Barn Research, which is located not too far from where I live in Ventura, California, uh, they do Christian-based research, research. And one of the things that they did is they looked at the state of millennials today. I'm going to have some data about millennials in a, bit, in, a few, in a few moments. And they said, though Christianity remains a powerful force today in the U.S., its waning influence on American life means that younger generations are coming of age in a country more secular than ever. Now, I have to say, when I grew up, I think most kids had some religious upbringing. They had something. 
they at least gave um, a sense of understanding about the values and the ethics that they should follow. But what's happening today is more and more young people are being raised in a world where that does not exist. Right and wrong is determined by humanism by the consequence, not by a moral right or wrong compass. And so when you think about it today, we live in a land that, where people can't discern from the right hand to the left, whether it be on any of these particular matters, and you could put a whole bunch more up here. How would a person who hasn't grown up with religious parents in, a, in an ecclesia or a church that taught some truth on these matters have any idea about any of these things because what they see being broadcast on television, what they see all the time in the media are exactly the opposite on most all of these things. So, we live in a time where we have a world that's filled with people who can't discern between their right and their left, and it's progressive. So our Western experience today is we see people progressively moving away from God and denying him, and some will believe in God, but there is a huge skepticism, and I can't say I blame them in all cases, of organized religion. That particularly is true, was true initially in Western Europe. Society is progressively looking at people like you and me, and what they're equating our beliefs to are things like Greek mythology, fables that have misled people over the years. And this is the way they feel about it. And what we're seeing is flat growth in our own community and, in some cases, decreases. Christendom has already, the ones that are churches that are supposed to be teaching people these principles, have already begun altering and watering down their messages because they need members that, are that they're losing. And there's heavy compromise that is being made. And at the surface, when you look at these kind of factors, you say, well, it's hard to be optimistic about what's going on in the West. But I wonder, brothers and sisters, if there is a Nineveh moment coming for us. Is there opportunity ahead? Now, as we look at Western countries, this map is a little bit shocking because the blue, the bluish countries, the dark blue, are ones where we can see the percentage. This is the world's least religious countries. And so when we look at places that are blue, we realize that there still is an active amount of religion and there's some growth there. They claim uh, to be either uh, religious or not religious, so the red are countries that are basically atheist. And the one that shocks me, and it doesn't shock people from Canada, is Canada. How many Canadians do we have here? You're not shocked by that. Um, Western Europe, orange and red. United States, which used to be pretty dark blue, has moved to kind of a lighter color blue. And so as you look at what's going on in the Western countries, you can see that People who are not religious or atheist are largely concentrated in the Western countries from which we grew. Now, there's a big, a big but on this part, and that is there's hope. 
And I think there's really exciting hope. So what percentage of Americans say that they believe in God, pray daily, or attend services once a week? This was a Gallup poll. And as you can see, the silent generation now, I know there's some people in here that are the silent generation, so I'm going to be very careful about that, but that's a decreasing group, right? 92% uh, of them say that they believe in God. For baby boomers like myself, 92% um, say that they believe in God. But even as you move over to Generation X and older millennials and younger millennials, which are born after 1990, you can see that still the vast majority believe in God. Now couple that with do they actually practice? So how many of them pray daily? Well, you can see the numbers drop all the way down to about a third here. And how about actually going to a religious service once a week? And you can see that that goes from about half all the way down to 28%. So here's the opportunity. In our countries, in, in, particularly in the United States, this is an American study, we can see that the vast majority of people still believe in God. They may not understand what they should about God. They may not practice. They may not, um, may not be going to church regularly, but there's still a fundamental belief in God. <clears throat> this is another study uh, done by Gallup, <clears throat> and they, um, asked, they asked a group by, by age, um, or actually they asked this group, they said, how many of you attend church or a synagogue at least once a week, almost every week, about once a month, seldom or never. And as you can see, for people they found, for people, um, all groups put together, all the groups, only about 22% go to church every week or attend some religious service every week. 10% um, almost every week. Uh, 11, about once a month, and then almost 50%, or actually right at, it's over 50%, seldom or never go to church. Now, that is an opportunity. That's an opportunity. Half of the people who believe in God don't go to religious services. That's an opportunity. Add to this one. Americans with no religious affiliation. It's not that they don't go to church. They don't have a religious affiliation. They're not Baptists, they're not Jehovah's Witnesses, they're not anything. How many of them are like that? Well, for those who are in the older generations, the, what's called the silent generation, the baby boom generation, um, you can see that there's really not a, a huge number of those that are, um, that are not associated with the church. But when you get up to younger folks today, you can see that you're approaching 36 or more percent of people who are younger that just, they just don't, they're not affiliated with the church at all. 35% are unchurched. Now let's just talk about millennials. For I have, out of my three kids, um, two of them, I always remind my oldest one, he's not a millennial. Um, he's, he's a Gen Xer. Uh, but two of my kids are millennials. One was born in 81 and the other one was born in, in 84. Uh, this is a really important group, and it's a big opportunity within America 
for us to be able to reach out to them. So what do we know about millennials? Well, first of all, look at the percentage of them and how they feel about God. We, we looked at this before, but it gives us a little bit more information. The silent generation, 74% said, I believe in God, and only 19% said, I believe, but I'm just not certain. A very small percentage said that they didn't believe, and that, those numbers are relatively unchanged between baby boomers and the silent generation. We get up here, not a whole big difference between Gen Xers. But look what happens when we get up here to millennials. 58% say, I believe, and I'm absolutely certain in God. But there's a lot of people who just aren't sure. They aren't sure. They believe, but they just aren't certain. And again, I think that's an opportunity for us. What else do we know about millennial behaviors? We find out in Barnard Research that millennials are twice as likely versus their older uh, age groups twice as likely to express personal interest in Christianity. Um, and saying, the question they ask is, I'm interested in learning more about Christianity and what it could mean for our, my life. Older folks, basically not so much. Younger folks have quite a bit of curiosity on this issue. And Barna Research also said this, millennial non-Christians, so those in that age group, uh, non-Christians are much more likely to have had one or more conversations about their faith than their older counterparts and are twice as likely to express personal interest in Christianity. They've also had much more personal experience with all kinds of evangelistic methods than older non-Christians, including through tracts, encounters with a person either at church or on the street. However, their favored method for exploring faith is a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a Christian, something only one-third of older non-Christians prefer. Huh, so that's interesting. And it's kind of an interesting thing about what we need to be thinking about in North America. So first of all, most millennials have a belief in God. Over a third aren't affiliated with a church, which is an unprecedented number in America. There's huge skepticism about government and huge skepticism about big religion and inadequate knowledge for most about God's word for them to be able to discern between right and wrong. But they'll listen to people. They will have a discussion with trusted friends. So the question is, how do we respond? Now, first of all, do you see an opportunity with that? Um, I do, and one of the opportunities is this. They're open to discussions with friends about their faith, and to, they want to explore. And they are comfortable with and expect trusted participation. Many don't have religious training um, from their early life experiences, and millennials tend to be a very co connected group, and they tend to want to learn kind of right now, just in time, small sound bites. Now that's a challenge for us, right? Because when we think of just-in-time training, or just-in-time just delivery, um, that's more like what, the, what Philip did with the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that? The Ethiopian eunuch is sitting in his chariot reading what we know as Isaiah 53, and he comes to him, he runs over to his chariot, and the, the Ethiopian eunuch says, uh, he, well, Philip says, do you know what you, do you understand what you read? 
And he says, how can I unless some man explain it to me? And so he read the, path, the passage that was there, and from that point taught him the truth. Now, I think that's kind of interesting because what tends to happen is that's not the way we like to teach the truth. Somebody asked me a question, but I really, I need to go back and have them go through, uh, you know, the ASK course. I want to take them back to the fundamentals uh, because they can't really understand it unless I give them the whole picture. I'm not sure that that's going to be a way for us to effectively preach to young people. Um, our community began with debates and public addresses. Over time, we've been, for lack of a better uh, phrase, a systems teaching group. We like to lay the foundation before constructing many of our doctrines, which is a perfectly fine way to preach. And the Bible reading seminars, as an example, have created a productive systematic format, generally for people who are older, which maximizes the ability for us to lay the foundations and then talk about some doctrines. But clearly, millennial attendance in our seminars is not very high, contrasted to those who are older. And the preaching of the future, and maybe our opportunity, is to engage all Christadelphians in something that will build our faith, and that is personal witness. That's not a new concept. In a lot of ways, that's what our community was built on. Personal witness, inviting somebody to come to something, giving somebody something. I remember that uh, reading about uh, back in the uh, early 1900s how somebody was brought into the truth because somebody was walking along and they saw this woman reading. Uh, they stopped and said, hey, I see you reading all the time. And she said, yeah, and she handed 13 lectures. That's a great place to start. 13 lectures to this, woman, to this man. He read it and it led him to the truth. It takes us back to who we were fundamentally, which is a group that looked at themselves as every one of us having a responsibility to personally witness, to give a word in season. So, when we think about these days, culture, and we think about the gospel, we live in a culture that's moving away from God. But the gospel always trumps culture. The gospel is stronger than culture. It's more important. It's the way we need to think. It's the culture of the kingdom. And that's what we need to invite people to be in. You know, I thought about where did they run into culture issues? And you, you have to go to the Apostle Paul. The collision that he went through because of uh, the issues about culture. Um, the collision of the circumcision party and the future of the gospel. It was a huge culture issue. Um, and we see that what he would do, the challenge of change, was that... Paul himself, in order to save some, uh, he said, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage or my own way, but that of many that they may be saved. Um, and of course, his flexibility when he shared the gospel message was that to the Jews he became as a Jew in order to win the Jews, but to the Gentiles he became as the Gentiles, that he might when some. So the question I'd like to wrap, begin this wrap up with is to ask you, what is your passion 
for the future of your own ecclesia? Do you have a passion for that? Do you have in your mind a view of what God might do in your community? Now, there's an interesting study that was done. It was actually a blog that was written um, in 2016 by Casey Newhoff. And this is what he was doing. He said there are seven signs when he did a study of all these different churches. And he said, whenever you talk about the ability for a church to change, what are some of the things that threaten it? And I won't go through all of these, but one of the, one of the real issues is when they were so fond of their past, they were unwilling to develop a vision for their future. In other words, the fondness for the past exceeds the passion for the future. And I'd like to suggest we need to be passionate about the future because people in this world are scared. These people who don't know if they believe in God, they're terrified about what's going to happen, whether it be the things that are happening in the Middle East or the things that they can see with between Russia and the United States, or nuclear arms and the threat of nuclear arms, or things environmental like global warming. Uh, there, there's so many things to be afraid of. And you know, in North America, it's interesting that after World War II, after World War II, when the GIs came back, here we go, it's doing this again. After World War II, when the GIs came back to the United States, and they had been through terrible experiences, particularly in Europe and over in Asia during World War II, and they came back and they began to bury their dead. And what was their response? Well, there was an unprecedented response, and it, we can read this uh, in this quote from uh, Julia Rady Shaw at University of Toronto. Noted historian of religion, John Webster Grant, wrote with respect to the trend in religious observance just after the war ended in 1945, that what happened in Canada, as in North America generally, was so different that it remains to this day a source of wonder. Men and women who had shown no more than a perfunctory interest in the church before going off to war demonstrated on their return an enthusiasm that confounded all prognosticators. The return to worship that occurred over the course of Second World War was truly singular. It had never happened before. Regardless of denomination or creed, an individual could find community, they could find comfort and spiritual solace in his or her church. It happened like that, and they didn't see it coming. Okay, so could that be our opportunity? Could it be that the things that shake this earth in the last days are so significant that people themselves are looking for answers? And will we be there individually able to go and to take a message of hope to them? Now I'd like to just, this is my own personal list. I'd like to say there's seven things that I think it would be good for us to start doing or to do now. And you're not gonna maybe agree with the first one, but I really think it's, a, it's an important message for us as Christadelphians. The first one is we have to stop speaking like we do about other Christian churches. Frankly, it's embarrassing to me. Now, do I believe other churches have all the truth? No. 
there are some churches, by the way, who have a lot of the truth. And if you're involved in seminars and preaching, you will find that to be the case. But speak constructively to people about other churches. Other churches aren't a bunch of entertainment in most cases. They actually do study their Bibles a lot in many cases. And generally, they're good at being able to teach right and wrong. And we should be thankful for that in the society we live in. Denigrating them and other churches works against us. And I think it makes it look like we're ignorant. So that's my personal view. When I hear Christadelphians talking about other churches as being non-Bible studiers, uh, when I hear them talking about that they have really very little interest in God's word, I feel like you're too isolated. You don't really know what's going on. I thank the Lord that I'm a Christadelphian and that we have such a large portion of truth, if not all the truth, but there are a lot of churches who are fundamentally trying to understand, and we should talk constructively to others about that. Here's the next one, which is personal witness. It's all going to be about personal witness, being able to talk to people that you work with, that trust you, your neighbors, wherever they might be. And in our community, we have had a tendency to go to the committees, to go to the preaching brethren, who, you know, they're better at this than me, and I'll let them do it. We delegate this. We can't delegate personal witness. It needs to be championed, it needs to be nurtured, and we need to train for it in our ecclesias. We need to reverse this trend. We need to ensure that all members can effectively communicate first principles and the gospel message. There's a, in the tidings right now, there's been articles by Brother Duncan Kinsey, and he's talking about your personal statement of faith. What would you say to a person, if you're an elevator going up, what would you say to that person about your personal faith? We need to drive this from youth up. It's what enables personal witness. Here's another one. Um, ensure that there's adequate balance between outreach and edification. Go back and read what Brother Roberts had to say in the Ecclesial Guide. He said it's a balance, and when it gets out of balance, which it ordinarily will, um, the ecclesia isn't as healthy. We need to ensure that we have an adequate balance between, and probably not only in our spending, but in our efforts between what we do outside to those who are outside, as well as those that are in, within. And we need to make communal prayer stronger. We need to make a focus on that in our community because as we are stronger in our prayer, in our community, it will help to facilitate better personal prayer lives. There, are, I'm going to tell a very brief story because I know I'm running late. Um, I've, done, I've done many seminars. I love doing seminars. Uh, I love seeing people hearing the truth. Um, and I know that I have my brothers and sisters behind me. In fact, they, they invest in it. Um, Sometimes they participate in it, and they help in many different ways. But I was invited to go to another church. It was the Mission Viejo, which is near where I used to live, Mission Viejo Community Church. It was a non-denominational church. And one of the people in our class said, would you come and talk to our pastor so you could do that seminar for us? Wow, they have 500 people. And I thought, wouldn't that be quite an opportunity? When the pastor met with me, he said, 
can I pray for you? And right, at, right there in the front part of the 500 people, he actually prayed for the success of our seminars and for the work that we were doing. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't know if I've ever seen that done. I'm sure it has been. Maybe you've done that. Uh, we do it sometimes uh, in a general sense. We'll pray for the seminar. But to actually bring our presenters up front and pre, or it doesn't have to be up front, but to pray for them specifically for the work that they're doing. And it doesn't have to be just about seminars. It could be about most anything. Having stronger communal prayer, that's clearly something that Christadelphians feel generally that we need to improve on. Here's another one. We need to commit to create a passionate vision for what we would like to do in our, in our own areas. What our ecclesias hope to accomplish by God's grace in our community. And we need to communicate that broadly and frequently and be open to changes and not compromise godly principles. Collaborate with all ages when we do this. And the next to last one is we need to keep this global experience in front of our members. If you have kids that don't know about what's going on in Africa and Asia, you should tell them. Let them know that the truth is growing. It's a fantastic thing that they should know about. In fact, beyond that, I would also say, if you have the ability to give them experiences in these areas, all the better, all the better. The last thing is this one, and this one's not anything that's really new, but if you're involved in ongoing conflict within the ecclesia, drop everything and attempt to solve it. Attempt to resolve, because nothing provides more evidence to somebody who has doubts than when we fail to live up to our profession. We need to be committed to face in and to try to resolve conflict within our ecclesias. So that's just my list um, of seven things that I would think that we should be doing right now. So the question is, is our Nineveh moment coming soon? Might we see 100% increases? 200%? 1,000? 4,000? Wouldn't that be something? And by God's grace, that could happen. So what is the appeal of the last day? This is my last slide. In Isaiah 45, verse 20, assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. That kind of sounds like our generation. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And may we, brothers and sisters, in our own personal lives, in our own ecclesial lives, in the region that we are privileged to live in, may we all ourselves be watching and waiting, praying that we might be able to, in the communities that we live in today that don't want to hear, that when they do hear, and want to hear that they will hear from us the true gospel and that by God's grace that we'll see growth also in North America.